Welcome to Salt and Light with Pastor Rodney Finch. Salt and Light is a radio outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Cary. Jesus, speak to me. Open your word and reveal your heart to me. Salt and Light is a series of verse-by-verse studies through the Bible, focusing on its practical application to our everyday lives. Salt and Light is recorded live at Calvary Chapel, Cary, in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us, so be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of John, chapter 6. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney. As we've traveled through the Gospel of John, we looked at the signs and the miracles that Jesus did, and they were always a setup. The signs and the miracles were a setup, or the demonstration is followed by a declaration. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, if you've been with us in John, you know that in John chapter 2, the sign, Jesus changed the water to new wine at a well-known wedding in the town of Cana of Galilee. The setup, John chapter 3, Nicodemus has been set up for a conversation about new life. John chapter 4, the sign Jesus had a conversation with a woman who had come to draw water from the well, and he told her some intimate details that only the Messiah would know. The setup. Jesus talks to her about drinking living water. She comes out to draw natural water. Jesus talks to her about living water. Are you getting me? The sign. John chapter 5. Jesus heals a lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, the setup. Jesus wanted to have a conversation with the religious leaders, largely about the Sabbath. Here in chapter 6, the sign. You been with me? Jesus fed the 5,000 or the 15,000, 25,000 with how many fish, how many loaves of bread? Two fish and... Okay, I'm giving you all the answers. What more do you want from me? (laughs) With how many loaves, how many fish? And how many loaves of bread? That's exactly right. 15,000, 25,000 maybe with men and women and children. The sign, which was a setup for this beautiful discourse on the bread of life. John chapter 6, look at verse 31. They begin to challenge Jesus to give them bread because Moses gave them bread from heaven. And they're saying, Jesus, can you top Moses? You gave us bread in this one sitting, but Moses gave us bread every day for 40 years. And in verse 32, Jesus told them the bread wasn't from Moses. It was from whose saints? It was from God. Look at verse 35. I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Last week we left off in verse 40, and we pick up in verse 41. I've titled this sermon, The Bread of Life. I think part one, we'll see. John chapter 6, saints, we pick up in verse 41. 
If you're looking at verse 41, say, I'm looking at it. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. In verse 44, I want you to underline the entire verse. And as a matter of fact, I want you to read it with me in verse 44. Come on, read it with me. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written, Jesus says, in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, Jesus says, except he who is from God, me. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Verse 48, read it with me. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Saints, stop right there. Give me your attention. As we come to verse 41, we are still in the middle of Jesus' discourse on the bread of life. They began to complain about Jesus because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And if we will come to him and believe on him and feast on him, we can have soul satisfaction. We can live forever and be raised in the last day. And they complained. Some of your Bible says, and they murmured. Uh, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and you got a pen? Perhaps you want to jot down a few things here. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, Jesus is saying, I am the satisfier of the soul. Jesus is saying he is the one who completely satisfies human need. Just like food satisfies the body, so Jesus Christ ultimately, finally, everlastingly satisfies the soul. This is what is meant when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, and they complained. Some of your Bibles say they murmured. Some of your Bibles say they grumbled, which is the correct translation. And the reason they're grumbling is because of what Jesus said doesn't fit, listen to me close, the reason they are grumbling is because what Jesus said doesn't fit with what they think they know about him. In other words, the word of Jesus collides with human perceptions and human reasoning and what, of what is and what is not possible. Jesus said, I came down from heaven. They said, you can't be from heaven because our eyes and our ears and our minds tell us you're from earth. Our ears and our eyes and our minds tell us you're from Nazareth. You're Joseph's son. We know your mom. We know your dad. Now, remember I told you last week, John loved to talk about the incarnation 
Well, John loves to talk about God becoming flesh. That's the theological word incarnate, God becoming flesh. In verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. Uh, Chapter 8, write this down. Chapter 8, verse 42, for I proceeded from God, or I came down from heaven, the incarnation. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 3. Chapter 16, verse 28. Chapter 17, verse 8. God took on human flesh. God, listen, became flesh. God became a man. John likes to talk about it. They're murmuring about it. They're murmuring about the fact, murmuring about the fact that Jesus claimed to have come from God. He came from heaven. John loves to talk about that. We call that the incarnation. Hailed incarnate deity. Don't we sing it during Christmas? Uh, Christ, the highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord. Hailed in time, hold him close. Thoughts ring of a virgin moon. Hark the harrow angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. I'm feeling Christmassy. <laughs> it's the incarnate. That's what that is. The incarnation means God became flesh. John liked to talk about it. Oh, we got a second. Hold your finger right here and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Talking about God becoming flesh. Philippians chapter 2 is on page 1043 in the holy and anointed version. That's my Bible. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, talking about God becoming flesh. Y'all doing all right? All right. All right, look at chapter 2, verse 5. Why don't y'all read it for me? Because my voice is tired. I've been preaching all morning. Y'all ain't been saying nothing. Read verse, come on, read verse 5. Let this mind. Come on, read like you mean it. In the form of God. Made himself of no reputation and taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of man, incarnation, And being found in appearance as a man, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Put the Bible in your lap and clap your hands and say amen. Will you do that? The incarnation. Paul liked to talk about it. John chapter 6. John liked to talk about God coming in the flesh. And Jesus liked to tell us that he came in the flesh. So they're complaining and they're murmuring. They can't understand. And they said in verse 42, isn't this, look at chapter six, verse 42. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And they're wrong again. He's not the son of Joseph. He's the son of Mary, but he's not the son of Joseph. He's the son of the Holy Spirit or the son of God. Very good. Jesus came down from heaven. Now, when you say Jesus came down from heaven, what does that say to you? It says he came from God, right? It doesn't say, oh, he's from Nazareth. 
a city on the earth. It says, oh, he's from heaven, a city that is otherworldly, which that tells us that this is a textbook example of the natural man not understanding the things of the Spirit. You know, the Bible says that, you know. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, I have it for you on the screen. I want you to read it with me, will you? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 14, come on, read it with me. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, these guys are true unbelievers. There's a difference between unbelief and disbelief. Are you listening? There's a difference between unbelief and disbelief. Unbelief won't believe. Disbelief can't believe. Unbelief doesn't come from the signs or the deeds of Christ. Unbelief comes from the definitive claims of Christ. Unbelief blinds the mind. Unbelief hardens the heart. Unbelief causes you to be irrational. Unbelief causes you to think you know everything. And you don't know nothing. Anybody know anybody like that? They think they know everything and they don't know nothing. And don't misunderstand. These unbelievers, these carnal-minded people, these undiscerning unbelievers, they understood Jesus' claims. They understood Jesus' claim to come right from heaven. They understood Jesus' claim to be equal with God. They completely understood that Jesus wasn't saying, I am a God, as some people say. Jesus wasn't saying, I am a God. Jesus wasn't saying, I am a lesser God. Jesus wasn't saying, I'm one of many gods or I'm a sub-God. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to have proceeded from God. And it's very interesting because nobody griped or complained when he fed them, did they? They griped and complained and murmured when he said, I'm God. I am the bread of life. I came down from heaven. So in our text, Jesus is standing there revealing the glory of his Genesis, and they're scratching their heads. Jesus doesn't answer their theological point. Look at verse 43. Jesus said, don't murmur among yourselves. Verse 44, no man has come to me unless the father has drawn him. You see that? In response to their grumbling, Jesus says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now keep in mind, Jesus sees their unbelief and he says, stop murmuring. Jesus is looking at them and saying, you unbelievers, I understand the depth of your unbelief. I also understand only God can change it. It's like Jesus is saying, I know you're not believing Your only hope for belief is if God draws you. Do you understand that's a powerful truth? That's a powerful truth. The gospel is beyond the human mind. Say amen. Amen. It's beyond the human will. The gospel is too humbling for the proud and too demanding for the rebellious. The gospel is too lofty for the dark mind. The gospel is too holy for the earthbound. The only way for a person to be saved is for Jesus to come and look for them and call them and draw them to salvation. Did you hear that? The only way, I'm going to say it again. The only way for a person to be saved is for Jesus to come and look for them, call them, and draw them to salvation. 
That's the only way you can be saved. Now, were you with me last week? Just by a show of hands. Were, were you with me last week? All right. That's a good number of you that weren't. Uh, last week, and that were. Last week, we talked about two very important theological positions. And here's where I need you to turn your brain on and listen. We talked about two very important theological positions. And for those of you that were here, we talked about what two positions were those? Calvinism and Arminianism. We talked about eternal security based on the sovereignty of God, which is Calvinism. And we talked about conditional election based on God's foreknowledge, which is Arminianism. I told you in verse 37, go ahead and pop over there and look at it. I told you in verse 37 that we had both positions in one verse. Remember, we'll get this. In verse 44, again, we have both positions in one verse. No man, are y'all listening? No man can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. In other words, write this down. In our coming, there's a drawing. In our coming, there's a drawing. Here in this verse, we have the sovereignty of God and, and the responsibility of man. For you to come to the bread of life table, you have to be drawn to the bread of life table. And when he draws you, you have to believe and you have to come. And both of these ideas are true. Same truth written in two different viewpoints. One's a divine viewpoint, and the other's a human viewpoint. Divine sovereignty and human choice, and they don't contradict. Have you heard, just by show of hands, have you heard the words um, previent or previent, previent grace? Have you heard the words previent grace? Raise your hand. Okay, that's uh, about three of you. Okay, listen. Turn your brain on. I need you to think right here. The word previent comes from the word prevent in the English language. To prevent generally means to stop or to hinder. In the Bible, the word prevent means to anticipate, antecedent. Uh, your own reference, own time, Matthew 17, 25. When he had come into the house... Jesus prevented him. That word actually means Jesus anticipated. So previent or previent grace means, write it down, before man can seek God, God sought man. Okay, now listen. You can either learn this in seminary and it'll cost you $40,000 or you can learn it right here from me for free, amen, and give the 40000 to the Nehemiah Project. <laughs> say amen. amen. Some of y'all didn't say it. Amen. Previent grace means, write it down, or previent grace means before man can seek God, God sought man. The old theologians, I have this for you on the screen, talked of Prevent grace. It says grace that lays hold of us before we know it and prepares us for the emergencies of the future. Each one of us can now perceive the things before our conversion had a meaning which did not occur to us at the time. Let me read that again. 
previent grace, grace that lays hold of us before we know it and prepares us for the emergencies of the future. Each one of us can now perceive that things before our conversion had a meaning which did not occur to us at that time. Chapel Talks, page 148, Griffith and Rowland Press, Philadelphia, 1913 is the reference. So previent grace means before man can seek God, God sought man. In the seeking, in seeking man, God elects and predestines and chooses and draws and enables them to make their own choice to come to him. And all of that is true. Listen, let me give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, I took a trip to Southern California, um, flying out to San Diego, went to California. And I took a flight from RDU to San Diego. That flight that I took was on the flight roster before I chose to get on it. The FAA had already determined the destination and the time of that flight. There were many people on board who made the choice to get on that flight. They chose to fly. They chose the dates. They chose what airline. While on the plane, they weren't chained up. They could walk around. They could go to the bathroom. They could read a book. They could talk to each other. They could eat the four peanuts that they were given. Because that's all you're given on the flight nowadays. You get four, you get four peanuts, right? You got to ask for another bag. Usually I say, ma'am, would you mind? Can I have 15 bags of peanuts? <laughs> But they were making choices. Here's the point. They were making choices all the while the plane was flying to the predestined airport. Both are working together. They do not contradict. Now, listen, this argument of Calvinism and Arminianism, honestly, let me just say this. I said it last week, and I think it's worthy to be restated. If we are going to be honest Bible students, preachers, listen. If we're going to be honest Bible students, if we're going to be honest preachers, if we're going to be true to the gospel, if we're going to be the kind of people that expound on the word of God and we allow the word of God to say what the word of God says without us coming with our own predispositioned ideas and what we think it means, if we're going to be true expository preachers, then there will be times when you read the Bible, are you listening? There will be times when you read the Bible that you will be a Calvinist. And there will be times when you read the Bible that you will be an Arminianist. There will be times when you read the Bible where it says that God chose men. And then you'll couple, couple, flip a couple pages over and it'll say, men choose God. Both work, I think, together. Both are true. Both ideas coexist. You know, I told you last week, I tell you today, Calvary Chapel, our position here is we consider ourselves Calminians. Calminians. That means we believe both are true. We believe God chooses and elects men to come to him, but we also believe that men must choose God. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he who opens the door, that's you, where you got to reach out and open the door and he will come in. Both are true. 
I think of Revelation chapter 22 and the spirit and the bride. Y'all come on and help me. And the spirit of the bride say what? Come and let him who has ears say what? Come and let him that is thirsty do what? Come and whoever will let them take of the water of life freely. I think of Joshua 24, 15. Choose you this day whom you will. You choose whom you will serve. God chooses the elect. And the elect choose God. And both are true. I like what D.L. Moody said. I said it last week. D.L. Moody said, Lord, save the elect and elect some more. Don't you like that? Lord, save the elect and elect some more. Then there are some people who say that that's not fair. They say it's not fair that God has chosen some. Listen, I say it's very fair uh, for a couple of reasons. Matter of fact, it's not only fair, it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. And the reason is wonderful because, first of all, God doesn't have to choose anybody. You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch and Calvary Chapel Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at one 800 293 0923. That's 1-800-293-0923. You may listen to today's broadcast in its entirety by visiting the media library on our website at cccarry.org. We would like to thank you for tuning in to Salt and Light and pray that you have been blessed. Until next time, may you be salt and light.